Second Samuel chapter 13. Second Samuel chapter 13. It has been said that the things you do in moderation, your children will do in excess. And when it came to lust, David didn't even moderate. He was willing to murder to perpetuate it. So it's not surprising to find his oldest son enslaving himself to lust, that he would go so far to commit an act of sexual violence. But, you know, that was just the first seed that sprouts from David's sins here in chapter 13 of 2 Samuel. Because when this horrible crime occurs in David's family and David doesn't take appropriate action, another sprout pokes its head out when Tamar's brother Absalom resorts to murder to avenge her. So, chapter 13, we're going to pick it up in verse 18 after the rape of Tamar. It says, and she had a garment of diverse colors upon her, for with such robes were the king's daughters that were virgins apparelled. Well, then his servant brought her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and rent her garment of diverse colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went on crying. And Absalom, her brother, said unto her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But hold now your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Regard not this thing. And so Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. But when King David heard of all these things, he was very wroth. And Absalom spoke unto his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. Here we see the after effects, the, the, the post-credit scene, you could say, uh, from what happens to this horrible uh, sexual assault that is uh, perpetrated against uh, Tamar. Uh, we saw in verse 17 that when, in verse 16, he had told her to get out, and she said, no, this evil's even worse than what you just did to me. You're going to blame me for this? And he calls his servant to put her out. And so in verse 18, we see that the servant does and bolts the door behind her. But before we get to that action, it mentions uh, her clothing. It says she had a garment of diverse colors. Uh, This is very similar to the coat of many colors that Joseph was given by his father, Jacob. It just means a distinctive robe. It probably wasn't many colored. In fact, uh, it probably was, this phrase was used to describe a long-sleeved garment that extended to the feet. Now, that's not a typical, I know some of you ladies, you like the long-sleeved garments that, you know, go all the way down to the feet, and they whoosh, and they whoosh when you turn, and all that kind of stuff. And, And if you're a guy and you like that, come see me afterwards. Like to wear that, that is. <laughs> but it was not common to just walk around like that back then because that type of outfit was not suitable for working. You didn't get anything done like that, you know, uh, contrary to all the 1950s photographs. So you've seen them, right? No one's had it, no response. Like she's got the high heels on and she's in the perfect dress and she's mopping the floor, right? Yeah, never happened. So. <clears throat> So when someone wore this outfit, it it would show and reflect a favored status, you know, that this person was special. Uh, They didn't have to work like everyone else. That's why the brothers were so jealous of Joseph. Now, it mentions that this was a unique garment that these robes were what the king's daughters that were virgins wore. Uh, Being the king's daughter meant you lived in the king's harem. And and surely, uh, Tamar did work in the king's harem there, but when she was outside the harem or, or they were entertaining guests inside, she would be heavily protected and this garment would indicate don't mess with her. She's the king's daughter. She has a favored status. Don't ask her to do something. She is unique and special. And so this makes this whole scenario even more uh, contradictory because being inside another man's home, cooking him a meal in his home, but in this favored outfit, this should have never happened. She should have never been in this vulnerable place like this. And no one, no one, should have had the nerve to even think about violating her because this outfit proclaimed, if you mess with her, you're going to mess with the king. 
but it did happen. And she was kicked to the curb afterwards. And so the reality is, Tamar, she could never go back to that protected life. Verse 19, and so Tamar put ashes on her head, and she, she tore her garment of various colors that was on her, and she laid her hand on her head and went on crying. The Jewish people, the Middle Eastern people, they would put ashes on their head to signify emotional pain, whether it was disgrace or grief or something along those lines. Bad news came your way. She puts these ashes on her head. She tears her garments. And then the phrase that she went, put her hand on her head, went on crying. She didn't even want to see anybody. didn't want anybody to see her. She, she puts her hand on her head, and she's literally crying out loud all the way home. I cannot fathom what it would be like to be violated like this. I cannot fathom the, the absolute terror of what she went through and now the after effects of where do you go from here. But even though most of us probably cannot fathom that, it's not hard to imagine Tamar in her life right now feeling zero warmth and, and, and zero love. I, I, I can understand at least, even if I don't understand anything close to what she went through, I can fully understand why she would go home in this kind of grief, in this kind of sense of disgrace, of hopelessness. And of course, that kind of behavior in public is going to catch attention. And so when she returned to the harem, her older brother Absalom heard about it, and he went to her to find out what happened. Verse 20, it says, And Absalom, her brother, said unto her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Interesting question to ask. It's interesting, even more interesting in the original Hebrew because literally he calls him Aminon, which is what we would call in language a diminutive. Uh, basically, it's when you, you take a name or of a place or you take a person's name and, and you do something to it to make it less important. In other words, it's a pet name, but not a good one. You know, it's kind of like four eyes used to be. I don't even think they use that these days, but, you know, back when I was a kid, uh, that phrase was kind of just starting to go out of use. Um, you know, but that was kind of the, the thing. It's, it's a pet name, but not a good one. Aminon is not a, a good pet name. It's a, it's a derogatory name. Did Aminon, your brother, has he been with you? You see, Absalom already didn't like Amnon, and he already suspected him of evil intentions towards his sister. And yet, even though he was perceptive enough to guess the situation, his next advice is absolutely awful. As he asks the question, it's almost, it's almost like we get the sense here that, that, you know, she can't even speak, she can't even answer. She's just so, can't even put into words what happened to her brother. But before she could ever even do that, he says, but hold now your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Regard not this thing. Hold your, now your peace means don't take action for the time being. Why? Well, he's still family. He's your brother. We'll deal with this internally, not publicly. And then he says, regard not this thing, which means don't take this event to heart. Don't take this event to heart? Don't let this hit you so hard? Really, Absalom? She was raped. That's not how you help someone who's been victimized. And so... She becomes the victim of another abuse. Absalom, instead of protecting and comforting his sister in her pain, instead of helping her heart and, and helping her to her, her heart and her voice to be heard, Absalom decides to make it about himself. And so we have this sad epitaph to Tamar's life. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. As a king's daughter, Tamar's marriage would likely have been a political one in some way, shape, or form. And, and she would not have had a problem with that, by the way. This is a, this is a different culture today, obviously, um, but they would have not had a problem with that back then. Uh, the idea of being unmarried uh, was far better, than, uh, far better than whoever you could marry, I mean, far worse than whoever you could marry. Being married to anyone was far better than being married to no one from the perspective of a woman in that culture. 
Well, now that political marriage, any marriage to anyone of high status would become highly unlikely after news of her rape would get out. And the king's daughter is not going to be allowed to marry someone of low status. And so when it says here that she remained desolate, it means she lived in devastation in a deserted place. We don't know for sure what that means, but it does seem that she remained single, never got married, never had kids. And for a woman in that culture to remain single and childless was the equivalent of a living death. I think I have frequently witnessed those who have either been abused or those who have been aware of abuse and who don't do something because they, they think, well, well, well it, you know, this can be fixed or this person just has a problem. Sin like this, it destroys people, literally. It literally destroys people. It affects others. You know, when you you have a person in front of you who is being physically abused, and they utter words like, yeah, well, I shouldn't have said that. That, that's, not, that's not normal critical thinking. That's not normal processes to, to behave that way. But when someone has been mistreated and abused like that over and over again, and it, it damages the psyche, it damages the, the, the emotions, sin affects other people. You say, you know, I hear people sometimes, I say, well, you know, I was just trying to help this person, and if it got out, they wouldn't have gotten any help. And I'm like, yeah, but what about the person who's being sinned against? Our sin affects other people. And sometimes it can literally destroy a life. So please consider that when the enemy tempts you with something that seems irresistible, to cross a line, And please consider that when you find out about something that clearly crosses a line. Now, these days all the big rage is, I've been abused, you know, and it's verbal abuse or emotional abuse or something like that. I'm not downplaying communication that's unbiblical. I'm not downplaying things that are said or done that are unbiblical. That's not my point. But, But unfortunately these days that word gets thrown out there for almost anything you know, that we don't like that happens to us or any wrong that's been done to us, that we've got people who are suffering and, and we don't do anything about it. It's like the little boy who cried wolf over and over again, and then when the wolf finally came, nobody listened. Everybody's feelings get hurt, and they cry out abuse, and then as a result, when real things are going on, no one does anything. And so we've got people on the side of the road who are getting punched randomly, and everybody stands around with a phone. Absalom doesn't even have the decency to have a phone. Keep it quiet. Why? Why does Absalom do that? Because Absalom has his own planned solution for the problem, which we will get to later. Verse 21, it eventually does come out. It says, but when David, King David heard of all these things, he was very wroth. It doesn't say how David found out, but when it came out, he was livid. He was angry. When he heard of all these things, he was angry. All these things means not just Amnon's sin, but Absalom's handling of it. He was angry about everything. But what's fascinating about this tiny little verse here that's not very long, that's all he does. All indications lead us to think he does nothing. He gets angry and does nothing. And we aren't given a reason why. In Proverbs 13, 24, it tells us regarding our parenting, 
He that spares his rod hates his son, but he that loves him chastens him betimes. Chastens him, the idea is promptly. He deals with it. Refusal to discipline your children is not compassion. No. Now, there are certainly times to show mercy to our kids, just like the Lord does with us. There have been many times when I've sat down with my kids and I said, what's supposed to happen right now? I'm supposed to be disciplined. And I say, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to show mercy in this moment, and, and I'm going to explain why. There are certainly times to do that. But God's discipline of us it proves that he owns us as his kids. We read that in our scripture reading, right? In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as unto children. My son, do not, uh, do not you despise the chastening of the Lord, for nor faint when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, he scourges every son whom he receives. I, I have never, ever, ever used the word scourge in, in a way that doesn't sound painful. Never. Like, I've never thought of that word in a way that doesn't sound painful. God's discipline of us, it proves that He owns us as His kids. You're my kid. I don't, I don't, go, around, I don't go around disciplining other people's kids. I discipline my kids, though, because they're mine. I love them. I care about them. I care what direction they're going. And the Lord does so with us. And so, a parent who refuses to set boundaries and consistently discipline their child when those boundaries are violated does so either out of laziness or selfishness. There, there is no other explanation. It's either, and I don't care what your counselor tells you, and I don't care what some book tells you, because the book says you don't love your kids if you don't discipline them. There are times my dad used to say, and I never believed him, and I still don't fully believe him. Right before spanking was coming, he'd say, son, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And I'd be like, no. <laughs> no, it does not. And, but you know, you get to that place with your kids where you're having some of those repeated challenges with them. And you know, you, you come home, and, and, or you see it, and you just think to yourself, I don't want to do this again. I, I do get it to that degree. I don't, I don't want to do this again. It breaks my heart that, that this has happened again, and we have to go do this again. And the times that I didn't do it is because I was tired and I didn't want to, or I was being selfish because I, I didn't want to, to go through the harder thing. And you know what it's a lot easier to do is yell from the couch and, and, you know, get mad and angry when it finally tipped over my boiling point. And laziness and selfishness when it concerns parenting is unacceptable considering the awesome responsibility that God gives to us with our kids. And if you are going to show mercy, you need to explain that very clearly to your children. You can't just let it be ignored and go, I'm showing mercy. No, you need to have a sit down and have a conversation and explain why there's mercy. The reason there's mercy is because someone else already paid the price on the cross. That's the only reason there's mercy. The only reason I experience God's mercy is because of what happened on the cross. God just doesn't arbitrarily just go, oh, I'm going to be merciful because, you know, I'm a merciful God. No, someone had to pay. And so that's the conversation I have with my kids when we talk about mercy. I say, I'm not going to discipline you. This is what's supposed to happen, but I'm not going to because Jesus paid the price for this and I'm seeing in your heart that I can tell that you are regretful of what you've done, and, and so, you know, we're going to go a different direction this time because the Lord is merciful to us, and you need to learn that lesson too. It's His kindness that leads us to repentance. There are many times that I've 
watch my kids' hearts melt, you know, much more by the mercy I showed. I would say that that's not the norm, though. Much more often, they're not, they're not, they're not really thinking about it, and the discipline is what helps them to direct their heart and their attention to dealing with the Lord on these things. When they're little, you know, you have to help them do that. When, when they're little, you know, you can't just go in and do the discipline, you know, and whatever that is, however you've decided to handle that, you know. You, you can't just go in and give them a spanking. You can't just go in and ground them or, or take this privilege away or whatever and then walk away. You have to go in. You have to sit down with them. You have to explain what they did wrong and how they violated the boundary that you set up very clearly. And, and then you deal with the discipline. And then afterwards, you need to confirm your love to them. And then you need to help them talk to the Lord about it because they don't know how to do that. That's why the Bible says train up a child in the way he should go. The word they're trained, it means to deal with this thing in here. The real problem's in here. It's the heart. The heart's deceitful and wicked and, and, and awful, you know? And so we begin to shepherd that heart. We begin to train that heart. And then as they get older and they, they know how to pray and they know how to go to the Lord about things, now we have different conversations. We go through the same process, but then rather than me walking them through a prayer or helping them pray, now I ask the question, so what now? You know, when my kids start hitting that, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12-year range, we start having the conversation, what now? What are you going to do? Like, what's your plan moving forward with this? Well, I don't know. Well, are you concerned that, like, we have a, a clear rule and you're an intelligent human being and you didn't care about that rule? Does that concern you that not only did you dishonor mom and dad, but you didn't care about God who commanded you to honor your mom and dad in this area? Well, yeah, that, that does bother me. So how do you think you're going to solve this problem? Like, what's, what's the next goal? Like, like, what's the next step of action to, to, to fix this problem? Why? Well, I don't know. I mean, I've done it a couple times before. You know, I don't know how it's going to get better. Well, how about we talk to the Lord about it? Oh, would, would you like me to pray with you? Or do you think you can do this on your own? Well, I think I can do it. Okay, so, so what, what exactly are you going to pray? You guide them. You shepherd them. You know? And then, you know, they, by that time, then they hit the 15, 16-year-old range, and then, you know, you're just, it's a whole different conversation. You know, so... What now? I, I need to talk to the Lord about this. What, what do you think you're going to say? Like, well, how do you think you're going to approach this? I, I need to really confess this thing is sin. Good. Praise the Lord. We're done. We're done. I don't know. Okay, well, let me shine the light on that pride and that stubbornness and that hard heart and, and point your way to Jesus. That's what it means to bring up your child in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That takes time. <laughs> it takes consistency. Now, some suggest that David didn't punish Absalom because, well, God forgave his capital crimes. That's true, but David also experienced heavy consequences for those things. Some would suggest, well, David didn't have the moral authority because, to confront his son because he, you know, he, he had done the same thing, to, I mean, to a degree. Well, if David didn't think he had the moral authority to confront his son, then he misunderstood his own forgiveness. If you think you lack the moral authority to confront your children because of past mistakes that you've made or present struggles that you have, then either you're unrepentant or you misunderstand God's forgiveness. I, I, it's a pet peeve of mine when someone says, you can't talk to me about that, you're a sinner too. I'm like, well, then nobody can talk to anyone. And then all the commands in Scripture to provoke one another into love and good works, none of us can obey. So certainly that's not what Jesus meant when he said, to, you know, judge not and lest you be judged. That's certainly not what Jesus is talking about there. The Scriptures are really clear. You know, when it talks about, you need to get the log out of your own eye. Yes, I do, so I can help you get the thing that's in your eye. It's not, not ignore the thing in my eye because you got a log in your eye. No, get the log out of your eye so you can help that person get the thing that's in their eye out too. That's the point. It's not let bygones be bygones. No. <laughs> so 
if you don't think you have the moral authority to confront your kids because of past mistakes or present struggles, then either you're unrepentant or you don't understand God's forgiveness. Because the reality is perfect people don't exist. People who confess and repent of their sin do exist. And that's all the moral authority you need. You know, when I can come to my kids and I can say, listen, I get it. I get it. I struggle with this too. But let me tell you how I found the way out. Let me tell you how God's working in my life in this area. And, and I'm here for you to help you walk through that too. Our goal is to launch our children into adulthood as those who can do all those things with the Lord on their own. And then they can even go a step further where they can help someone else come to that place too, especially if they have their own kids. Now, David knew better than anyone else the steps that a man will take when he's willing to do murder. And my guess is that he suspected Absalom handled it this way because Absalom had his own personal planned solution. And that was true. Verse 22 tells us, And Absalom spoke unto his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad. You know, Amnon should have recognized that when a man says nothing, that's the worst kind of anger. My kids... Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of an overreactor, uh, slightly maybe. What do you think, Bev, slightly, you know? I'm a bit of an overreactor, you know? Uh, and, and so, you know, my kids usually know that when I say nothing to what happened, that's, that's not good. I can always see it, you know, they'll come by and say, hey, Dad, I, you know, do you need anything? <laughs> no, I don't need anything. <laughs> when I'm not saying a whole lot, they know it's because... I am plotting. <laughs> when a man says nothing, that's the worst kind of anger. Because it means his decision is already made. There's nothing to argue about. He's plotting about now what to do, how to do what he has already decided to do. For it says Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. There are those who speculate that Absalom actually plotted his sister's rape with Jonadab. Remember the guy who counseled Amnon how to do this whole thing? I would say that's a big stretch because whatever scorn Absalom had for Amnon, it didn't become hatred until the rape occurred, according to the Scriptures here. Uh, The reason that people bring this up is because, well, remember, Amnon's the firstborn, right? So the way other kingdoms do it, who gets to be king next? The firstborn. And so the idea is, well, if I can somehow get him dead, I move up one slot, right? And that's, that's what some people are saying, that Absalom, who eventually will take the kingdom from David, that this was his prior plotting to become king. I don't know if that's true. The Bible really doesn't speak to that. But what the Bible does teach us is that a man who has hatred in his heart has already committed murder in his heart. So Absalom's next actions should not surprise us. Verse 23, and it came to pass after two full years that Absalom had sheep shearers in Baal Hazor, which is beside Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's son. And Absalom came to the king and said, behold now, your servant has sheep shearers. Let the king, I beseech you, and his servants go with your servant. And the king said to Absalom, nay, my son, let us not, now, not all now go, lest we be charged unto you. And he pressed him. Howbeit he, David, would not go, but he blessed him, Absalom. Well, then said Absalom, if not, I pray you, let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said unto him, why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him that he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Two years later, Absalom throws a sheep shearing, and this is a a, a massive celebration that you would put on if you had shepherds. Uh, Beth Hazor is about uh, seven or eight miles northwest of Jerusalem, so not far from the palace. Sheep shearings were festive celebrations in that culture. Friends, family were often invited to the feasting and the games that would occur in the evenings after the hard day of work shearing the sheep. And so he comes to his father David, and and he says, listen, I I beseech you, uh, you know, behold now, 
Let the king, I beseech you, and his servants go with your servant. In other words, I'm inviting all the king's sons to this. I want, I want everybody to come to this. Not with the whole family. Or dad, you come. All the brothers come. All the half-brothers, half-sisters. Bring everybody. This is going to be a great time. <laughs> Throw in a huge party. I want you, your advisors, the whole family to come. It'll be my treat. In verse 25, the king said to Absalom, nay, my son, which means certainly not. That's that's, that's, a, that's a big undertaking. Let us not all now go, lest we be chargeable unto you. I bring my whole, whole royal court, the whole royal family. That's way too expensive for you, son. No, I'm not doing that. But note, it says that Absalom pressed him. The word here, pressed, it means to destroy an object using impact. He just kept hitting his dad over and over and over, and he finally broke through his father's objections to the point that David said, fine. He said, I'm not going. He said, but you have my blessing to bring everybody else. You can invite all the royal advisors. Anybody who wants to come can come. Invite all the, all the family. Anybody who wants to go can go. You've got my blessing for that. Go and have a great time. Now, David doesn't explain why he doesn't want to go, but when he does that, that gives Absalom an in. He throws out another request when David says, I'm not coming. Verse 26. Then said Absalom, if not, which means if you won't go, he says, let my brother Amnon go with us. If you won't go, Dad, well, then can you send Amnon to represent you? I mean, he's your oldest son and mean, mean a lot to all my people, all my, my servants and my shepherds and workers. It mean a lot to everyone if he was there, you know, to speak on your behalf, represent the kingdom. David immediately becomes suspicious. He says, why should he go with you? <clears throat> but Absalom explained it as he, he just wanted all of his family there. And so he, it just says he keeps pressing. He's the same thing. I just want, I want everybody to come. He pressed him, and then he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Again, Absalom destroys David's resolve. Listen, we're all different personalities. We're all, all different makeups of, of people. Some of us are, are not stubborn. We, some of us struggle with, with fortitude. Some of us, we, we don't struggle at all. You just need to give us a cause, and we're going we're gonna to die on that hill, okay? And we're as stubborn as all get out. But whatever your personality is, if you are a parent, a parent must always, always, always have greater resolve than their kids. You must always you can't do your job any other way. I have always explained to my kids when they're being stubborn that I'm willing to do whatever it takes to communicate the principle I'm trying to enforce. And I tell them, I will outlast you. You will not wear me down. I will outlast you because you mean that much to me. If that means sitting at the table with them until the situation is resolved, and that's three in the morning, then so be it. So be it. If missing your favorite TV show or getting things done around the house or you know, doing the extra work you need for that promotion is more important than your children's moral or spiritual well-being, then your priorities are wrong and your kids will see it. They will know. Respect requires someone to be respectable, if you want respect. We're to give respect in obedience to the Scripture, whether it's deserved or not. But if you want to be respected, it requires you to be respectable. While love and discipline and character and resolve don't guarantee our kids will make good choices, it does put us at least in the best position to be the best influence in their life. And that's the best you can ask for. David, unfortunately, is not willing to do that. So Absalom gets the perfect scenario for revenge. Verse 28, now Absalom, he had commanded his servants saying, mark you now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. When he's a little bit in his cups, he's a little tipsy, and when I say unto you, smite Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. And so verse 29 tells us. 
And the servants of Absalom did unto Amnon as Absalom had commanded. And then all the king's sons arose, and every man got him up upon his mule and fled. Chaos. Chaos. You know, it's funny, we don't have anything about the sheep shearing, nothing about the circumstances of when he's actually killed. We just get the instructions, and then just a statement that he's dead, and chaos as everybody bolts. This command here, he says, you know, have not I told you? Have not I commanded you? The I here is emphatic, implying that the one saying, have not I, has a high status. You're not going to get any trouble for this because I have the power to make these kind of decisions. Be valiant. Be courageous. The word be valiant means become sons of might. We've already talked about the mighty men of Israel. You know, they're elite warriors. They're heroes. Absalom seeks to overcome their hesitancy at committing murder by telling them they'll be remembered as heroes. You just need to seize the opportunity. Men with power throughout history have manipulated those who serve them by the promise of fame or reward or by appealing to their sense of duty and patriotism. It works. Men want to be heroic. Men want to be useful. Men want to do, you know, those great deeds. And so, they murder Amnon in cold blood. And all the king's sons arose, and they, every man got him on his mule. That's not usually what you expect to see, right, you know? Chaos breaks out. Find the mule. Get out of here. You know, we usually don't expect to hear those words, but... And what's even more weird is that mule breeding in Israel is illegal. Uh, breeding two different types of animals was forbidden by Leviticus 19.19. 19. That's illegal. Uh, it technically, it doesn't say you can't have one, but how are you going to get one unless you breed it? <laughs> a mule is a cross between two different animals, right? I mean, if I understand correctly, and correct, you know, you feel free to correct me if I'm wrong after the service, uh, but you know, they, I don't think they can reproduce. I think you have to take the other two species and put them together to get this one. Now, why is the mule here? Well, they were preferred over horses or donkeys by persons of distinction. It was a status symbol, you know? You know you didn't, I don't even know what the status symbol car is these days. You know, Lexus was the big one as when I was, you know, in my 20s. So I, maybe it still is. But, you know, Cadillac, let's use that for 1970 or whatever, you know? You know? The mule was that, that present day. You know, that was the, the Corvette, the Ferrari, the, the Cadillac, the Lexus. That was, that was the, the car. You know, that was the mode of transportation. That was, hey, look at me. Check out my mule. You're like, you got a mule? How do you afford that? You know, it's like, yeah, look who's got a mule. Driving my mule. And yet, when we see all the king's sons on it, we see another compromise from God's law in Israeli society. Be like the other nations. So they fled. They fled because Amnon, in their mind, was because he was first in line to be king after David. Uh, I don't know who number two was. We know Absalom's three, so whoever number two was was probably the first one on the, on the first mule, you know? You, know, you kick down number four, not my mule. You know, and you get on there and run because you're thinking you're next, and that's what they all flee. They think they're next. Absalom, he's taking out Amnon, and all of us are next, so he can uh, eliminate all competition for the throne because it's a coup. It's a coup. He's going to try to take the throne. And, and that's the news that finally reaches David in Jerusalem. Everybody's dead. Verse 30, and it came to pass that while they were in the way, that tidings came to David saying, Absalom has slain all the king's sons and there's not a single one of them left. Not a one of them left. While they're fleeing, rumors come in. Everybody's dead. The whole royal family's dead. Absalom killed them all. It's a coup. And so David, verse 31, the king arose and he, he tore his garments and he just lay on the earth. I mean, he just 
face plants on the earth, gets on his face, and he's weeping and crying, and says all the servants, they stood by with their clothes torn too. This is, this is absolute nightmare scenario. This is, this is the worst that, that could ever happen. Verse 32, Jonadab, this royal advisor who had given Amnon the advice that eventually leads to his murder, he read the situation a little differently. It says, and Jonadab, verse 32, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, so this is um, David's nephew, he answered and said, let not my Lord suppose that they have slain all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon only is dead, for by the appointment of Absalom, this has been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord the king take this thing to his heart to think that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon only is dead. This is what leads some to conclude that Absalom and, and Jonadab were in cahoots from the very beginning for the throne. Um, the scripture again, though, doesn't say that, and Jonadab never comes into the narrative again. This is the last we'll hear of him. Uh, so when Absalom takes the throne later, you would suspect if they were in cahoots that he would become Absalom's chief advisor. He does not. Another man does. Uh, fascinatingly enough, it becomes Bathsheba's grandfather becomes the one who sides with Absalom. A little bitter, you know, about that whole mess. It is more likely that Jonadab just had the best read on the situation. He explains, Amnon was a walking dead man the day he raped Absalom's sister, and he was right. Verse 34, but Absalom fled, and the young man that kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked. So whoever's on guard, the young man who was on guard that day, beheld, uh, behold, there came much people by the way of the hillside behind him. And Jonadab said unto the king, Behold, the king's servants come. As your servant said, so it is. And it came to pass, as soon as he had made an end of speaking, and that, behold, the king's sons came. They lifted up their voice. They wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very sore. This was just a, a horrible day. It's interesting that Absalom flees because it, it does beg the question if this was just a crime of, you know, of revenge, personal revenge, or if it was a true attempt to elevate his status. Um, it is very possible that it could have been a little bit of both. You know, that Absalom did want the throne um, and that this was part of that, but there was also a lot of emotion involved and it was personal revenge. We'll, we'll examine that when we get to later chapters and Absalom does try to take the throne. But here we see that the result is Absalom goes one direction, all the king's sons come home. Absalom cannot come home, of course. And when they get there, there's lots of weeping, lots of tears. There were tears of relief that all of them weren't dead from David and his family's side. There were tears of loss because this was a horror for the royal family. And there's certainly tears of pain among the advisors because this is a bad sign uh, for the kingdom moving forward. Well, where does Absalom go? Verse 37. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. I always am, you know, kind of interested, you know, when I get to heaven someday, I say, God, why didn't you say he went to grandpa's house? I mean, that's who this guy is. This is his grandfather. It's his, his, his mother's father. Um, Talmai was David's father-in-law, Absalom's grandfather. Geshur is a small city-state between northeastern Israel and Syria. David had made an alliance with them to kind of be that buffer uh, because he was frequently at war with Syria, as we see in earlier chapters. Uh, and he solidified that alliance by marrying Talmai's daughter, Maacah, who is Absalom's mom. And so he flees to the kingdom of his mother, you know, the kingdom uh, where his grandfather's ruling. And, and note here, it says that David mourned for his son every day. Um, the only way David could extract Absalom at this point, if Absalom finds safety there, if he finds safe harbor there, is he's going to have to go to war, um, which is the normal plan of operation in a situation like this in that culture. It's going to be seen as an attempt against the throne, uh, and therefore it's going to be considered an act of war. And if he goes to another kingdom and he's going to be harbored there, then it, it presumes they're complicit and you just can't tolerate that. So normally these types of things sparked wars. But David's grief keeps him from making any course of action. It says he, he mourned for his son and the reference here is to Amnon, the dead one, 
It says every day, but literally means for the rest of his life. For the rest of his life. Even the worst criminal is someone's son or daughter. And it's very normal for a parent to see their child's wicked behavior and have it just break their heart for the rest of their days. It's also, sadly, very normal for a parent to see their child's wicked behavior and blame themselves, to mourn the loss of what that child could have been. And I'm sure it's a mixture of a lot of those things for David. And, and what this is saying is David, David never, never got over his pain from this, never, never. And so he, he doesn't do anything and verse 38 tells us that Absalom fled and went to Geshur, and he was there for three years. And so we know that during this time that preparations are made for war to deal with Absalom, but in verse 39 it tells us that David can't bring himself to do it. King James says, And the soul of King David longed to go forth unto Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon, seeing he was dead. But if you know it, the words the soul there are in italics. It's not in the original text. So the phrase here just says, And King David longed to go forth unto Absalom. The word longed here doesn't mean he longed to go see him. The word longed here carries the idea of wanting to do something but being unable to bring yourself to do it. One translator says it means David's enthusiasm for marching out against Absalom was spent. In other words, what David was supposed to do, what the cultural norms of the day says, you march in there and you, you deal with the criminal. You deal with the traitor. You deal with the one who tries to take the kingdom. You deal with the kingdom who harbored him. But as preparations are being made for this, David is unable to bring himself to, you know, to, to make the final decision, to say, go, march. Why? because he was comforted concerning Amnon, seeing he was dead. David's initial anger and grief over Absalom's actions begin to fade with time. Why? Well, the word comforted is an interesting word because it has actually a few meanings. Number one, it mean, can mean to find relief from sorrow and distress. So it's, it is possible that it's referring to the fact that it, the pain was not as severe and he did not suspect that Absalom was actually trying to, you know, take the kingdom, that it was just revenge or in his mind some warped sense of justice. The word can also mean to be in a state of sorrow and regret about a wrong you've done indicating a desire to change. Another meaning is it means to cease a particular course of action, usually with a focus that you're going to be gracious. And so when it says that he was comforted concerning Amnon, since we already know it says he never got over it, I don't think it's the first definition. It's one of the last two, which means that David, instead of wanting vengeance, wants to be gracious. This time of inaction and grief over three years, it caused him to recognize the mistakes he'd made, and it's possible that he wanted to do things different moving forward, that he wanted to be gracious, that he wanted to stop being the king like everybody else, all the other nations had, and maybe handle this in a different way. That, of course, is a big problem in Middle Eastern society, though, because there's other individuals involved. Amnon had a mother who would demand vengeance. Many in Israeli society would expect vengeance. And for David to reconcile with Absalom would be a sign of weak leadership. And so we have to wait until next chapter to find out what happens. So come back next Sunday night for the next episode, chapter 14. Anyway, closing thought. Who knows how Amnon and Absalom both would have turned out uh, if David had been a better example. We, we don't know the answer to that question. We don't know that. I don't know if these guys would have been the same individuals and made the same bad decisions. I don't know. I can't say. But I can say that the men they did become were influenced by David's failures. There's no way you can't. Can't be. And so for those of you who are fathers here tonight, I want to leave you with an important truth. You have the responsibility not just to teach and discipline your children, 
but to be a good example of a man. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, it says this. Paul referring to the Corinthians, he says, for though you, uh, <clears throat> 14, he says, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warned you. For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have you not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. You might have a lot of people have an input into your life, but I'm your dad. I'm your dad. And you've seen how I live. You didn't learn this from me. Be followers, wherefore, he says, I beseech you. Be followers of me. Imitate my life. Because I'm not just your teacher. I'm your dad. Let's all stand. Lord, we are planting seeds. You warn us of this. We're always planting seeds. It's not a matter of being a witness. It's what kind of witness we're being. And Lord, certainly our kids are, Lord, our number one targets for discipleship. We want to plant the right seeds in their lives. And so I pray for the parents here tonight and those who will be parents someday. I pray that you would pour out your spirit upon them. Lord, in the areas that you've convicted us tonight, we we lay it at your feet. We say, Lord, this is wrong and it needs to change. And I'm so sorry. Lord, you know what everybody's talking to you about right now in their heart, what they're saying to you. They're saying, this needs to change. I confess it as sin. I, I repent. I want to be different. And for those that are doing so, Lord, I pray that you would forgive them and I pray that you'd fill them with your spirit. They might have that selfless love for their kids, that, that consistency, Lord, that fortitude to set clear boundaries, to be consistent with enforcing those boundaries, to invest the time that's necessary into training our children up in the way that they should go. And Lord, I pray you bless all of us as we make that commitment tonight. Lord, that the seeds we plant would be ones that sprout up unto unto life and not death. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.